Hello and welcome to the podcast According to Sci Faith, where we discuss topics revolving around the compatibility of science and faith. I'm Josua Göcking and you're listening to According to Sci Faith. Review of the episode 17 to 20 Where are the bugs? Episode 17 Do we live in a simulation? So yeah, this question is around for some time now. So many people think about it. There were many movies made about it. And it's also uh, in, in science, it has come up several times. There are scientists who really believe in this so-called simulation hypothesis, where we say that we might be living in some kind of a computer simulation where everything we experience, uh, even our innermost being, our thoughts, our mind, our consciousness is itself uh, just part of some huge uh, simulation and I think today I wanted to go after this question um, do I, do we believe it's true or why why is it true is it true or what can we say about it or uh, to to say it bluntly why do I believe it's nonsense so uh, let's let's go through it and I want not only to talk about why I don't believe in it but also why I think ideas like this or ideas in general where I believe they are kind of nonsense even if you cannot prove anything about it uh, why I think that th these ideas seem to be so present in these times and what what could be the cause of it and so we also will dive in into literature about this so it will be really exciting so uh, stay stay in stay tuned and so let's just start start by by talking about the um, what we mean by by living in a simulation so I, I mentioned it's uh, just like being in a big computer simulation so it's that the idea is there is so much computing power there's a society there where there is so much computing power that we basically can simulate everything and uh, without any problems and then there might be a society like this who would really say hey we want to simulate uh, events before of, of the past we want to replay the past and so on and they start such a simulation and the question is uh, is it probable that we would be part of such a simulation is it likely that we would live in such a simulation so first of all let's consider how that idea might have come about so um when when we consider the beginnings of science we we see uh, uh, if you think about the beginning of modern science it's mostly started with people like isaac newton and so on and if you look uh, at the worldview that isaac newton had is isaac newton thought the world was uh, just like a big clockwork a big mechanical clockwork where everything fitted together one sc uh, screw fitted into the other and everything uh, worked out perfectly and for him uh, for newton himself this even was a, a big show that or a big sign that there has to be, be a god so in his Uh, in his work in his great scolium he states that uh, such a perfectly uh, perfectly fine-tuned universe but such a perfectly clockwork uh, could only can only be possible if uh, there's a designer behind it if there's uh, a guard behind it who created it uh, such that everything works out perfectly so of course i am paraphrasing freely so but if you are interested i recommend to you to to read the great scolium of newton it's really and uh, really really good uh, or really interesting what he writes uh, writes there and really shows you what his mindset or what his thinking was behind all this 
So now we, we go into the future, so that, that or we, we just stay in this time, we, we look at uh, how long was this this worldview around, and it, it's been around pretty long, so the, the worldview that was brought by Newton has been around for a long time, and for the most part because it's been really, really effective. Uh, science could be described in a really good way by this uh, worldview of Newton, that everything has a cause, that that. We believe that still, but uh, that also, if I know the initial conditions of something, I can perfectly describe the whole system. And I need only to have this and know the physical equations that describe the system. And then I can compute everything. Then I can predict everything. And there's nothing, uh, nothing coincidental happening. No, no accidents. Nothing. So, so I can describe everything basically by those laws. And this has been a long, uh, around for a long time. So by by the 1900s, it was still um, very much believed that the world really exactly behaves in this way. The one problem that this worldview has, although Newton was convinced by this that there has to be a God, it still limited the kind of God there could be because... It, If one would think it further, which people later did, especially in the 1900s, it would yield to this idea that everything would have to be determined. So every the way of every particle of every atom would have to have be completely determined, which of course led to this conviction that, okay, if this is the case, then also every particle in our human body and in our human brains would have to be determined uh, from the beginning of time. And therefore, if If we were therefore also determined in our thoughts and in our thinking from the beginning of time, how could then something like free will exist? So this was a big conundrum that uh, came up then and this uh, could not be uh, easily uh, solved. I mean, you could, of course, if you just assume that there is more to humans than their material being, then you can easily solve that. But it was quite something that that people struggled with and that uh, people had uh, problems with. But uh, what what happened then is then in the 20th century or with the beginning of the 20th century, there came a new came new theories about, and one of this theory was quantum mechanics. And in an earlier episode we were talking about multiverse and quantum mechanics and interpretations of such and then we already saw hinted at this that that, that there's a probabilistic nature of quantum mechanics that uh, changes this whole Newtonian worldview where we are no longer in such a perfect clockwork but where we Still, where, where the world is still really fine-tuned, so it's a, in, in this fine-tuning sense that Newton had, it is still a very much perfect clockwork, but it there are probi- probabilities that play a role all of a sudden, and not probabilities in a statistical sense that you say, okay, we have so much particles, it's just easier to make predictions about uh, using statistics instead of looking at each atom individually, which... It is just impossible to do. No, now there are real, real probabilities that are uh, are occurring that we cannot, uh, where we cannot predict what will happen. We can only say, okay, to a certain probability, such and such will happen or will not happen. And this was the big change or game changer that uh, quantum mechanics brought. And most of all, it was really counterintuitive. While Newtonian's worldview was. Uh, some in some way intuitive it came intuitive to the thinking of the people at the time and also it comes if you learn about it in physics it comes intuitive to you 
uh, once you learn about quantum mechanics, it really goes against the intuition we have about our world. And there was another theory for the, which this was similar uh, that came about at about the same time. And this was the theory of relativity that Einstein came up with. And here it is also, here it's that the, the statements of the theory, they are easy to understand, I think. I mean, you just have to assume that the speed of light uh, is constant everywhere and you can easily um, derive that from statements that really that do make sense. But the results of these statements are still very counterintuitive where you have all of a sudden uh, time behaving differently depending on how fast you move relatively to each other. So there's this, uh, this popular twin paradox which really clearly shows this. So where there are two twi twins, so twins who are, and the one twin is like an astronaut and he's traveling around space with speeds uh, close to the speed of light. And on the other side, there is uh, the, the other twin and he's, let's say, just some accountant who's in his office all the time, does not travel much and so on. And so so they they live their lives and in the end it will be that the, the cousin, uh, the twin who is is the accountant he will age much more fastly uh, and and than the other twin so because for the twin who is traveling a lot close to the speed of light time will pass more slowly relatively to his twin so for him he experienced time the same as we as the other twin would but if you compare them if if the the other twin looks at 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 his twin brother he sees him aging slow slower because of this uh, consequences of of the light speed of light being the same uh, at every in every in every system so this is re these results were really also on the one hand quantum mechanics and later even quantum field theory and and also uh, this the theory of relativity. So and I think what 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 you saw then was people were really uh, re starting also so especially older scientists who were used to Newtonian the Newtonian worldview they were really rejecting these ideas the theory of relativity and quantum mechanics even einstein was uh, was not really comfortable with uh, quantum mechanics at first so they were really rejecting these theories and uh, because they were going against their philosophical uh, convictions and but they turned out to be wrong right because today we know that the world actually behaves uh, in in such a way as we had had in this earlier episodes there there are still many people who have different interpretations of it and it's still highly debated what the true interpretation of those uh, theories is but still we know that there is some truth to that description of our universe and therefore those scientists uh, scientists who were rejecting these ideas were wrong And I think this led to somehow believing that 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 even that if so, while these older scientists were wrong in thinking a, a theory that goes against my intuition has to be wrong, I think today it's sometimes switched in the other direction where we say no matter how crazy a theory sounds, it could in principle be right, and therefore I will not reject it, which is in principle also right and and of course true because. As far if something is not um, is not can be proven then and is proven then then it, it, it we have to accept it, but there, I think there is still the 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 
danger to go too far into that direction where we see stuff that cannot really be measured, cannot really be shown to be true, uh, and and we accept it as as something of value, or even where where where, where things where we kind of know that world the world shouldn't behave in such a way but because we say yeah i don't want to be of the ones who think it's crazy and in in the end i'm uh, i i'm the the one who who was wrong in all this so therefore i think people tend to stay away from from such predictions but i i, I think that in the end it's important to to also have their still go after some intuition the problem is the intuition has to be right or it has to be founded on the right principles and also one there one has to be of course flexible but i think it is a mistake if one goes too far into the direction where everything goes and everything could possibly be because then you might waste your time on theories who are complete bogus and co complete baloney and therefore i think there needs still to be some uh, distinguishment between what what Uh, theories do really have merit and what which ones do not and i think especially with such hypothesis i mean it, such hypothesis in my opinion like do we live in a simulation they make for a good uh, sci-fi movie like the matrix or, and and there you can pack a lot of great stuff in it so it's also one of my favorite movies uh, and nothing wrong with that but i think if we look to it as a theory of uh, as something if it is really true if we really live in co in a computer simulation i think there's easily you can find reasons why that might be wrong or why that is not the case and therefore i want to make it obvious that i don't believe in such uh, a hypothesis and i think it's to my opinion sometimes a waste of time to to really um go deeper or, or be occupied with such ideas and also i think it shows a greater thing about how theories come about in in, in these times and why there might be a problem with it so first of all but let's let's look at the argument that is presented why such a why we might be living in a simulation and a great uh, or one of the greatest scientists behind this or who who is convinced of of such a, a simulation hypothesis is Nick Bostrom and he states that um Yeah, there are many works of uh, science fiction, he says, uh, that for forecast such technologies where where such a thing is possible, where the computing power is so so hugely advanced that it it will be possible to to uh, come uh, to code such a simulation to create such a simulation, super powerful computers who can can do this, and what we would do in the science fiction novels if we, or stuff if we do it we would look to our forebears uh, we would simulate what they did and so therefore we have to assume that this is done and if this is done in some future then there is still the possibility that we are in such uh, in such a simulation and this is highly probable then he argues and he argues that this is um, the only way in which this is not the case is if some one of these assumptions is wrong so either we do not a achieve such a future where this is uh, possible or we would not simulate uh, something of the past if this were possible and i think he's he's right in this and he, i think where he's uh, where, where where this is true is that the assumptions are wrong 
That's in my opinion, because I do not believe that such a simulation would be possible. Especially, or more than that, I believe that such a simulation would not be possible for humans. Because the first questions, and I think uh, question, and I think the most important question, which is also the title of the preview for this uh, episode, is uh, that it comes about when when this uh, is discussed: is where are the bugs? Where are the bugs? So if you're not uh, familiar with uh, software development, uh, a bug in, 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 in the software development is usually a, an error or a mistake in, in, in the code where something has not been considered. And if, if you run the code or the program and you come to some point where you make uh, click on something and then there is nothing to handle this uh, issue that you that because it was by mistake or by somebody did not consider this use case and then all of a sudden the, the program crashes or something some unexpected behavior occurs or whatever and it If you if you are familiar with software development, but even if not, even if you just use your smartphone daily or your computer daily, you might have recognized that sometimes your your apps crash or some something occurs, and this is just because there are in in all our software there are still bugs. So everywhere where we have uh, humanly co uh, programmed software, which is <laughs> all the software there is, uh, we, uh, there is, is there are some bugs in it. There are some er mistakes in it. Something uh, that were not uh, predicted when the software was implemented and uh, could not have been known to the developers. And usually this is not a problem because these bugs can be quickly fixed. But there are also some. Uh, some severe accidents that happen because of it so it's not not a small thing especially in 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 parts where where the where there are severe severe things that can can happen but what the important thing is is that that these bugs occur everywhere so i i mean if you ask a company uh, if you are looking for a software developer or software company that develops uh, bug-free software, this is just not happening. The only way to achieve that would be to not develop any software, then it's completely bug-free for sure. <laughs> But that would not uh, be any of any help. So to my, in my opinion, the fact that we do not observe in our world any kind of bugs is the greatest statement that, there, there cannot, that we cannot be living in such a simulation that was created by humans. You might say, or sometimes in science there might, people might experience stuff or find stuff where they say hey, that for this we have no explanation. Why is this needed? This is, seems to be completely uh, arbitrary or completely useless. But usually later we find out, ah, this is the cause of it, this is the purpose of it, and it really is needed and without it nothing would work. So most of the time, even if we find something which one might call a bug, it, we find out later, no, no, that this is, this is an factored feature. So this is also a sentence from software development. It's not a bug, it's a feature. This is something that you... Most of the time you say it cynically if some software de development firms uh, develop something which you think to be buggy, but they don't fix it and they, they say it's supposed to be like that and there you say, okay, it's the, it's not a bug, it's a feature, it's supposed to be this way. But in, in, in the creation, it's, it's actually th this way that we, when we find 
that it's not a bug, it's a feature that we really begin to appreciate a feature because it is then a real feature. And we we expect usually in science then your horizon is expanded to why this is needed and why this is useful and why it is in such a way. But you don't find a bug. So and therefore this is my greatest argument for why I do not believe such a simulation hypothesis is true. More than that, if you think further, so let's just assume that there is such a simulation. So we have seen there are no bugs in this simulation. Apparently in our simulation, if we are in one, there are no bugs. So it cannot have been a human or a human company or something that has developed uh, such a bug-free system because that's not possible. So the next question then would be, who was it? So it needs would need to have been a perfect developer. And this is not very different from what you would call a god. So then the question is, where is this really different from, from believing? So I, I saw uh, uh, this tweet, uh, I also retweeted it, it was really funny, uh, of somebody who say, was saying about a simulation hypothesis, said, yeah, you, you believe we live in a simulation, uh, yeah, actually you just believe in God, you just think he's a nerd. So I, I found this was really fitting to, to what it really is. So, so we, it, it Because a simulation always assumes that there behind any simulation there has to be somebody who designed it, right? Somebody needs to design the simulation that you have. So if you play a computer game, there was there were some coders, some designers, some de software development team, some a game development team that designed all this. And the same way it would be in such a simulation, more than that even, that there would have to be someone behind it designing it. And how much more shows this that there has to be some guard who is designing it, especially if you see there are no bugs in it, so the, the, the designer has to be perfect. And the only difference that you then find between such a simulation and the... I call it real world, where we are not simulated, but where we are free agents living in a created world. The only difference then would be actually that what I called it, free agents, free will, that we have free will and that our decisions have consequences on the world in which we live because it is not simulated. It is real to say uh, it like that. And I think that's also the, the thing that this kind of idea tries to escape the it tries to escape the responsibility it tries to say yeah we are just living in a in a simulation and what we do does not have any consequences is not of consequence it's just a random a random simulation and we are part of it and let's have fun in it or whatever and i think um This is not uh, the case here. So I, I think it really is that we have free will, that we are created with free will from uh, from God and that our decisions do have consequences. One question that would also occur, of course, or to me at least occur, is if we are living in a, tr in a simulation and the designer, of course, has... I mean, he has complete control of the simulation. I mean, he can, oh, if you imagine, he can, okay, run processes more or less freely given the initial conditions, but he would have more or less complete control over the simulation. And why would he want the simulation to know that it is living in a simulation? I mean, you can pretty much argue that he would not want his simulation to find out that it li that it's living in a simulation because whatever he's trying to do with the simulation, whatever he's trying to simulate, the simulation itself, knowing that it is simulated, would work against this purpose. And therefore, 
the one more thing is I think you can think of it like that if we really would be living in a simulation we wouldn't wouldn't know that we are living in a simulation and the uh, we wouldn't be able to to even come to the idea that we are living in a simulation so i think that's a further strong argument against this and i i want to also see you to also see this is not really science i mean it's uh, called a simulation hypothesis there you see it's not even a theory it's a hypothesis and the reason for that is uh, there's no way to prove it there's no way to show that we live in a simulation as being part of the simulation there's, the, there's no way to to do that and therefore we are not arguing in science here we are science here we are more or less talking about philosophy do we believe that we are living in a simulation or not or more of this kind and i think this shows also what i was uh, talking about in the last episode about the, the, the limits of science and it shows here here we are clearly beyond the limits of science and therefore it is also nonsensical in a scientifically way to seriously talk about whether we live in a simulation or not but if you say okay what are what do i care science not science i want to know if i'm in a simulation or not so it's more about finding truth and to state this clearly finding truth is not only done by science or can, in my opinion cannot only be done by science there is, is as i said a limit to science and uh, there are truths that cannot be found by science there are several arguments i did also on my blog where i state this so for example in in mathematics you can find this from uh, from a proof of Gödel, where, where he basically shows something like this in mathematics but i want to do not want to dive too deep into that there's a blog post on my Substack where you can read more about that but what what i want to find is why do we come to this idea why do we as philosophical beings or human beings who think about philosophy come to this idea that we might live in a simulation where does this come from i mean if you Look at it. I, I think this this idea seems to me rather new. It seems to me rather becoming in in the last century, coming up in the last centuries. And the question is why. The question is why does such an idea come? Where does it come from? Where does it stem from? Why would one want to live in a simulation or want to have such a philosophical worldview of living in just a simulation and or many other ideas? I I'm not talking just about such ideas many different ideas how mostly um, materialistic ideas that, that for example also state that consciousness is nothing but uh, neurons fire firing in our brain and uh, then in, at some point something like a consciousness emerges how, how do, do, do these ideas come about why do we have not a deeper understanding of it and i think one point comes from uh, an an effect that also brought science itself about uh, but it's it, it also is a, a negative effect of an altogether positive thing as i i believe and i think this came also with the uh, as i already said with the emergence of the scientific method uh, and all, all this beginning of modern science i think this was mostly uh, triggered also by by the reformation uh, because uh, as we know the reformation occurred in a, at a similar time and i think this was really connected that with this new thinking also new thinking in the area of science occurred and you see this also in the case that many of the um, reformers or reformed thinkers were also 
scientists, for, for example, Johannes Kepler, and also not only scientists, but also scientists who are now... Uh, belong to this group where we think they they had an had a part in creating this scientific method and therefore this i think there's really the connection there and uh, if if we look at it this time from there so so i think uh, if you look from it from a uh, from a believer's perspective you see that there that before there was a lot of um superstition a lot of even in the church so a lot of superstitious beliefs and so on and also many things where you if you con compare what people believe with what really the bible says where this also deviated and where there was a lot of corruption in the church and so on and therefore i think uh, this reformation that came about with martin luther was really necessary and was really needed to reform the church to bring uh, uh, bring the church back to biblical uh, convictions and to biblical truth however this had an effect on society because if you look at it um society was uh, is usually for for society the, the church what the church said was the truth so what well, it was that their standard of truth and when 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 the reformation came there were all of a sudden was not anymore this one standard of truth But now all of a sudden there were two competing uh, theories or two competing statements about what the truth actually is, two competing institutions even, if you will, who were competing ab uh, about what truth is. And with the Reformation, of course, more and more other competing institutions came about. So there were several uh, believe, uh, groups uh, or directions of believing. So And um, it this led also to many, uh, many negative things, uh, mo most importantly to to wars so uh, and in the end you had this uh, 30 year war where uh, basically uh, they fought about uh, this uh, and in the end they came to the conclusion to say okay we we won't argue about this anymore everyone can uh, in his uh, um, in his area of authority so for the kings and uh, fiefdoms there there was basically they could uh, decide which 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 uh, religion they would uphold to, which kind of Christian belief they would uphold in their region and they would each other le leave each other alone and believers could decide in which region uh, they want to live uh, and uh, live according to their where they could live out their faith. So this was basically also the birth of federalism. And so, but this was, as you see, it was kind of a stalemate. It was kind of something where we just, okay, we, we uh, agree to disagree and uh, so this was not really the solution this is, this is what often is called the piece of Westphalia and uh, it also but it led to there not being a, a complete standard of truth anymore My, I mean it was an improvement because uh, now nobody was uh, being killed anymore no no wars anymore about something like this but but still I mean, if, if one, one could see it was just something like we won't argue about this anymore because arguing is no help. And I think there's there's one uh, thing that is uh, covers this pretty, uh, the, the whole 
Uh, there's one uh, one play that, that covers this really good. The, the whole thing that happened there with with this changing of the standard of truth, or or uh, with all of a sudden a competi competition of what what truth really is instead of this one standard of truth. And this is uh, from William Shakespeare, and it's Hamlet. So it's probably one of his most famous works. And uh, he in it, it, there are many things in it. It's it's really hard to to read and to understand stand but uh, it, there is really a lot of stuff in it it's really uh, enriching to to read it and to see it so uh, if you can I, i really recommend it to to watch watch it played for for example in a, in, a, in a movie and then you can also read it for example if you read it the the folger versions are really helpful they add a lot of uh, notes to that and if you really want to to what, what i find was really uh, interesting if you really want to know the difference or what kind of a difference nonverbal uh, communication makes then I, i encourage you to first read it and then watch it and then see how much more you understand of the play by just watching it but that's just a side note and uh, but I, i i really encourage you to read it because there's a lot of in it and But the basic story is, so there is this, uh, it's in the kingdom of Denmark, somewhere in the Middle Ages, I guess. And uh, there is uh, this this Hamlet. He is the son of the king. And uh, the, the king, uh, so he died. And uh, the, his mother, the mother of Hamlet, so the wife of the queen, he uh, kind of immediately after he died married uh, his brother, uh, who is, is now the king. And at first Hamlet struggles with this, uh, his mother immediately uh, going to the next guy, basically. And uh, later he also um, encounters uh, the spirit of his father who says yeah I, i i did not die of natural causes but i was killed by my brother so i was poisoned and he asks hamlet to revenge him or take a re revenge on him and from that that point on hamlet kind of uh, goes mad uh, intentionally as he suppose so he wants to um he wants to not uh, he wants to camouflage or disguise himself or his intentions uh, with acting like he's mad and and be acting crazy acting madly and in in this uh, in this part he speaks out all all kinds of things that might sound familiar also in in theories today so there's um, a lo lot of you you can find in there a lot of things of postmodernity for example he at one point he says um, there's no good or bad but thinking makes it so and so on so he 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 puts all these ideas that are pretty common in the time afterwards in the time after that that came up in the time after the reformation in these all these philosophies and there there you uh, can see that and uh, there are many ways uh, to interpret this play and there, i think there are many ways people have interpreted it and i think there are many possible ways to interpret it but i think one one i saw was really where where he um related it to um to really this happen happening of the reformation and the effects of this reformation especially on uh, on on society and uh, this can be also that that Shakespeare himself had this in mind can be also seen by the fact that uh, Hamlet himself is actually uh, not 
in 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 the in the play he's he's living there in the castle in 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 Denmark of course but actually he arrived from Wittenberg where he was studying and if you know about the reformation you know Wittenberg was basically the the center of the reformation where the reformation happened where where, where everything occurred so it's kind of the birthplace of the reformation so Shakespeare seems to uh, intentionally have created this link to the reformation there and if if that was his intention or not you can argue about it but i think really you can see it in this way that that through these uh, the, the reformation as good as it was as it brought us uh, as i believe really back to the word of god and to to the truth of the word of god and showed the importance of uh, scripture and of being justified justified by faith as important that was the effects it had on society where it had also negative effects on them because all of a sudden there was not anymore this one standard of truth but there was uh, competing standards of truth and and the problem that occurred with that was that people or, or that uh, the uh, several ideas could not be distinguished anymore uh, easily anymore you could not if you had some crazy idea you could not say ah okay is is this idea good or bad you could not usually you would maybe go to to your church say okay is this idea good or bad and then you, you would get an answer and you would continue in this way of course you if if you know the history about it, at that time that the church was pretty uh, corrupt in, in in some places at least and uh, so if you you might have gotten a right and, and true idea and gotten to to your church to find the truth and they would say it's false so it was necessary to to replace that or to to put in put this competing in but it was I think not a, the perfect solution, maybe, uh, and had these negative side effects. And as I, uh, as you can see, there all these ideas that are already mentioned in Hamlet began to spring up. So you have these postmodernist ideas where where truth is 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 supposed to not exist anymore, or that there is no truth. There's only power, and uh, also yeah, there's no good and evil. Just what we believe to be good and evil is is just basically random ideas that we get from somewhere and so on all these ideas that came up mostly in the 19th century and they but they were already in there and i think this is what what happened to to due to this um many competing ideas of truth and i think in science it was similar it uh, is uh, especially since all this um Basically, this worldview of Newton fall, fell apart, where where before we had the Newtonian ex, Newton's axioms, we had basically his worldview uh, of of this perfect clockwork, and where every every scientific idea that we tried, we tested on on okay, is it in accordance with Newton's laws? And if it wasn't, we usually quickly rejected it. But all of a sudden, we we saw okay, no, we need to reject the assumptions Newton made. We need to reject the assumption that time and space are absolute and we need to say no, there is relativity. Or we need to reject the assumption that everything is determined by its initial conditions and allow for probabilities and therefore for quantum mechanics to occur. And I think with this change, all of a sudden it was not anymore this one uh, 
great encompassing field that uh, on which we could uh, test all theories uh, or if our theories made sense before we even uh, test them but now all the theories could possibly be and then we have just any idea could possibly be we just need to test if it's true and i mean we have still this testing mechanism that we can test whether it's true or not that's that's good so there's we are not completely lost but i think it's still the case that there are many theories uh, that come about this way that can that only until they are proven or until they are falsified uh, are rejected and and i think this is a lot of time is lost this way and i i mean it's it's one thing to say okay we are losing a little bit of time that's not that that bad uh, but if you are uh, for example if you leave fields for um Of, of of physics and uh, uh, go to to other areas where where it really would impact people like theories of economics and so on where what you decide on depending on the scientific theory you have uh, really affects the life of people then then i think it gets more serious and there it would be helpful to have some uh, to not have to try out your theories on human beings uh, but to really have something to distinguish at that does this theory really make sense does it make sense to to do it in this way or is is it maybe even if there's no scientific facts about it is it maybe can i somehow still see that it is nonsense and not try it out on uh, on something with and doing uh, possible harm to it so therefore i think it, this is uh, important and to to distinguish there and what i think is really is really the the, the standard of truth that we can really uh, apply is really the, the word of god i think that's really our standard of truth the truth the the word of god uh, revealed by the holy spirit and i think that's what where we can stand and where, uh, and where everyone in his personal life can say okay if i if i concentrate on this if i let myself be guided by that then i will uh, save myself the trouble of going through ideas that are nonsense or going through theories where I in the end find out that they are complete nonsense so i think this is uh, the solution to this dilemma i think that we really uh, go to the word of god go to what he says because his truths are eternal as has been shown in history over and over again and uh, therefore if we stick to that and Uh, stay on this and not let this become corrupted of course well, because that's what what happened with the church they they were not sticking to that because uh, cause of different reasons uh, things got corrupted uh, but if we i think if we stay on that and if each one individually the um decides for himself to to stay on that to stay true to the word of god and and stay on his word i think then we can save ourselves the trouble of believing in some theories that in the end turn out to be complete nonsense and uh, this is also not only helping to not waste time but in some cases it's, it's really helping to avoid harm 
So I really want to encourage you to dive deeper into the word of God with this. And if such theories come about, such simulation hypothesis, or what about what is consciousness, some theories, how some machines or computers might get conscious or, or something, then really I urge you to 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 dive deep into the word of God and, and get your guidance from, from the Holy Spirit instead of these ideas uh, that are more or less scientific that are flowing around the airwaves. Episode 18. Quantum gravitation, where is the problem? So, uh, I several times already already wanted to talk about quantum gravitation. I, it's not really my type of field. So if you know the German podcast, which you probably don't, but uh, if you do, then you know that we talked about everything leading up to that point about uh, quantum mechanics and uh, general relativity. How can they be combined? But even if you don't know about this pretext, you I, I think you can easily follow along with this introduction I want to give today. And in the next time, I just want to dive deeper into that topic, dive into the theories that come about now. Then we will also look into duality soon. And then uh, I want to also look into theories like string theory and so on and also look at the problems that these uh, theories have or face or why they are not confirmed yet or still uh, considered to be not um, accepted or not uh, widely accepted yet uh, or and what the state of the research in these uh, these cases is so but if one wants to so so the question of course is okay quantum mechanics came about like in the 1920s um the theory of relativity even sooner uh, general relativity came about at 1915 and uh, e even the further theories quantum field theory was about in the 60s and 70s it, it was uh, formulated in its fullest so so why hasn't there happened something since then or has there happened something why why do we have not this uh, complete uh, theory of quantum gravitation yet why why do could we uh, unite uni or quantize every other th other thoughts than gravity and of course for one thing you know gravity is much uh, much weaker than all the other forces which is kind of funny because if you uh, look into it, the first force you experience in, in life or every time is gravity. You experience it all the time. It keeps you in your chair. It was also the first force that was uh, uh, scientifically dis dis described and the first force people, people were really aware of. And the next one was, of course, electromagnetism. And only later we came became aware of the weak, uh, um, the weak force and the strong um, force. But uh, the interesting thing is that the direct the, the direction in which we became aware of these forces is exactly the opposite to the strength of these forces. So gravity is the weakest force. Then there's ele the electromagnetic force, the w the weak and the strong forces. So actually, that's not completely uh, true. The the weak force is is um, uh, the electromagnetic force is stronger than the weak force but not because of their coupling but only because 
uh, of their that the weak force has uh, heavy gauge bosons but that's complete if you don't understand anything of that that's just a side note so uh, but but i think that's an interesting concept that the weakest force was actually um is actually experienced the most and uh, the the strongest forces we do not really immediately uh, recognize okay actually you do because uh, the, the, the electromagnetic forces and strong forces and so on are also responsible for you uh, not going through walls and so on. So you kind of experience them, but you experience them that not as directly as you do gravity, for example. Okay, but that's uh, only a side note. And we want... Th so this is one thing why you might say, okay, that this could be on a, on a subatomic level, gravity plays no role it cannot be measured there so maybe that's why we cannot uh, unite it with uh, the other forces but uh, the, to, we want to look deeper in what a real problem is if we write out the equations and put in the physics that we know about quantum mechanics and general relativity and why this becomes a problem so what we need to first show it, it is we need to have these things okay what about quantum mechanics what do we use so first we have this heisenberg uncertainty principle that we will use and then we have this uh, statement that in quantum mechanics it's the case that everything that can happen will have a certain chance or probability of actually happening and from relativity we take this uh, that um, statement that energy is mass so you know e equals mc squared and many people get hung up on this c squared but this is actually just a constant of proportional so you can easily easily uh, throw it out so that's actually what theorists do they say we choose our units such that the speed of light is equal to one and then this equation becomes pretty simple e equals m so this is saying that uh, mass is a form of energy and then we need also use a statement of general relativity where it says you can make a play, play you can create black holes by putting a lot of stuff in a small place so if we look into these statements so first into the heisenberg heisenberg uncertainty principle what does it really state and what do, what it does state, state is that you cannot simultaneously measure the momentum and the position of a particle to an arbitrary accuracy so if I know that the momentum is basically the the yeah the momentum the particle has it's uh, in classically it's the mass and the velocity combined and uh, this is uh, yeah is is what what it, basically it's speed combined with its mass and then the position of a particle and if I know for example the uh, the momentum then I really don't know where the particle is. If I know where the particle is, then I don't know its momentum. And there's this, this uncertainty in both these quantities. And there's another version in which you can formulate this. For example, you can, can equivalent to momentum and position. There is this uncertainty in uh, energy and time. And from this, you can state that it is possible to uh, borrow free energy from empty space as long as you pay it back within a short period of time and nobody is watching so this is uh, basically um, 
if you you have this uncertainty of energy and time this means you have an uncertainty in energy and an uncertainty in time and this also means that there can be no perfect vacuum because uh, there also needs to be some fluctu fluctuations in the energy because otherwise you would know the energy perfectly well uh, and you know, would know that it is zero but it cannot be therefore there needs to be some fluctuations about the uh, energy and therefore even in in the most perfect vacuum there will be particles popping up into existence and annihilating which each other which we call quantum fluctuations and this is um, basically what I, what I've described before that you can basically take energy from empty space from nothing basically you can borrow it and uh, if you don't keep it too long uh, therefore there comes the time aspect then you can keep it and then you can g have to give it away again so by the way just uh, i'm i'm following following here in this uh, the slides of uh, somebody from king's college in london his name is eugene a lim uh, so his slides on this topic i'm following and i will put the these in the description also if you want to follow along so uh, what we, now we look in, in in this in quantum mechanics so we we just look at an elect electron is traveling from left to right and what then can happen is it can as we have stated it can borrow energy from from the nothing from the space basically and emit a photon it can let out let, let a photon go out like radiating it from from itself now this energy it has uh, of course after some time it has to give it back so it has to reabsorb the photon and after some time and then everything is fine energy is conserved and uh, we are in in good physics again so what then happens you have kind of a loop so the electron travels it gives out the photon the photon comes back to the electron and is absorbed so you have kind of a loop there and these are the quantities are called quantum fluctuations as i just said and if you have uh, seen sometimes the diagrams that are used in in quantum field theory you might have seen such loops uh, of of photons of weakly lines and so on and this is actually what what's going on there this is this is such a loop and this these are called virtual particles and they are virtual in a sense that they are not real in a sense that you can really measure them but you can really measure their effect so this loop these loops they lead to corrections to uh, the the amplitude that we cal calculate in quantum field theory and there actually we need to uh, include all possible energies including even infinite energies and this is uh, done by adding up all these kinds of loops that can be created there and uh, summing this all up will give us this amplitude our uh, result and uh, so basically if you ask what really happens uh, what really of these possibilities of particles being emitted and uh, absorbed or even two particles being em emitted and absorbed or one particle being emitted and it itself emits particles and is absorbed and so on what of this is uh, is happening and uh, the answer is all of them at once and in, in some kind of way and the probability of any process is the sum over all these possibilities this is, if you remember, the path, path integral formalism that we, uh, in a previous episode, always al already discussed. This is basically uh, what's behind it. It's basically the path integral formalism in quantum field theory that all these um, all these amplitudes need to be summed up together and builds the whole um, 
the whole probability of this process occurring. And if one sums it up, and uh, there are certain possibilities what can occur. So the first possibility is that we will get a finite number. And if this is the case, then that's wonderful because then our theory is complete and then we, we can, can continue. Another possibility is, of course, that we get a, a number which is infinity, is if infinite in its size. So it, this number does not converge to some value, but it gets infinitely huge. Then we have a problem because infinite numbers in physics do not make any sense that's uh, we we cannot use that because it's not predictive we cannot predict anything from from an infinite number so when when we have this when you have infinity we know something in our theory is not working we our theory is not predictive and what we know then is that the, our theory might be incomplete so there might be a problem with it And this can be seen by a radioactive active decay. Um, there um, we have beta, beta radiation where an electron is emitted. So basically what occurs there is a neutron decays into a proton and an electron. And since this, uh, as we, I don't know if we discussed it in the English podcast, but uh, as the, this uh, is not uh, so the if one particle decays in two two particles the energy spectrum of this would be discrete but uh, the energy spectrum of the radio, uh, radioactive decay is continuous therefore you need a third particle uh, in this process which is called a neutrino which basically takes care of uh, energy conservation uh, but if you have this Uh, this process that we look into, so a neutron and a neutrino decaying into a proton and an electron. So we have this process and we want to look into the quantum fluctuations if, if we can make it work there. And as it turns out, if we do this, it, we will receive an infinite result. So this is one example where this, uh, this theory we have does not work. So what do we do now? Do we need to uh, uh, put... Pu Uh, avoid this theory do we need a new theory what what can we do but i mean as we have seen without the quantum fluctuations we describe the physics right so everything is fine uh, unless we include these quantum fluctuations so uh, that in a certain limit something needs to go wrong so maybe it's not completely wrong but only incomplete the theory is incomplete there's something happening that we are not tr keeping track of so let's try to fix this theory Instead of throwing it away, let's try to fix it. So again, we consider an electron that uh, emits such a virtual photon that it reabsorbs. And, but now we, we, we're changing something up. Now we say there's another electron and instead of the photon being absorbed by the same electron that also emitted it, This time it is absorbed by this other uh, electron. So one electron emits a fo virtual photon and this is absorbed by the second electron. So if you, as a side note, this is actually how forces do work. So in uh, on a subatomic level, forces work in such a way that if two electrons uh, are, are coming closer to each other, I mean, we know they repel each other because they have different charges. And the, the way this works is that one electron will emit a photon 
uh, which will the, the other uh, a virtual photon, which the other electron will absorb. And this way they know, oh, okay, there's somebody coming against me and uh, they, they will repel each other. This is how forces works and therefore the, the photon is not only a light particle, but also the uh, a media force mediator between the, for the electric force. But it's all only a side note. So we now have this uh, process where one electron emits a photon and another electron absorbs this virtual photon. So it absorbs this photon where the energy of it was basically borrowed from space. And now we assume that in our Fermi theory, which it is called this theory of radioactive decay, something similar happens. So instead of a neutron and a neutrino decaying into a proton and an electron, we have a neutron and a neutrino who exchange some new virtual particle we call W. And out of this exchange, they decay into a proton and an electron. And in in yet now we know from special relativity that energy is mass and so from from this we can use the energy that would be needed for this particle w we can use it to to say that that's the mass of this particle so uh, or, or the, the mass of this particle can be produced by the energy we we borrow from space basically this virtual and uh, this virtual particle can uh, come into virtual existence so to speak and if you we postulate this then we find that uh, we need also the existence of several more particles like a set and an h h is for higgs and uh, if we recalculate anything everything then we see that they, these infinities uh, disappear and our theory is now complete but for this we need very massive uh, particles so the the w the z and the h particle would need to be very massive the higgs particle for example so the h particle is 125 uh, protons uh, heavy and the w boson is about 90 uh, protons heavy and the z 80 or i think it's the other way around but so they are very very heavy which is as i mentioned before the reason why the weak because this is the weak interaction is actually weak uh, it is actually weaker than the electromagnetic electromagnetic one and although it actually would be stronger in its coupling but that is again a side note so now these particles could also be observed at a large hadron collider in cern or the Z and the W were observed in a synchrotron particle collider also at CERN in 1983. The Higgs was discovered in 2012 at CERN at the Large Hadron Collider. And uh, with this complete theory, this is now the complete theory of electric interactions and it has been highly successful and pre predictive. So the principle we used here is we had some theory, then we checked this theory if it, makes, it gives finite results. If it makes finite results, uh, then we check it in the uh, check it in experiments if it's correct if it's correct great we are finished Nobel Prize coming and uh, if it's wrong then well we have uh, to find a new theory but if we have infinite results then what we do is we do not give up there immediately but we add particles with a mass with a big mass to this theory until the theory is yields only finite results and then we check it with the experiment and if it works great if it doesn't work okay then we really have to find a new theory and so now let's look into 
into general relativity. Let's look into how we can deal with that. So in general relativity, as we know, this is the theory of gravitation. And so we have to find uh, something to describe gravitation with. So uh, in, in gravitation, as it was discovered in recent years, there are these gravitational waves which long have been uh, uh, assumed to be exist or which completely also follow out of uh, general relativity. And uh, those would, in on a subatomic level, they would be a particle. Uh, and this particle would be, we call a graviton. Uh, which has not been observed yet, of, of, of course, but it's uh, some particle that's go going, for example, in the same sense as we described before, we imagine this graviton is going from left to right. And again, we will there have these loop corrections. We will have the particle omitting some other particle, maybe even another graviton and uh, absorbing it again and so on. And then we check uh, with all these loop contribution contributions what kind of results we will get. And as it turns out, we will get infinite results. So we will get uh, um, contributions contributions that are infinitely big. And therefore, a general relativity obviously only works if we ignore quantum fluctuations. So no quantum gravitation there. So maybe our theory, as we assumed before, is incomplete and we can fix it somehow. So let's try to fix it. And what we do is again, we uh, again assume two gravitons and now they exchange this particle, this virtual particle, which we call P. So we have this hypothetical virtual particle and we want this to come in there. And now we want to c compute as before, which energy would be needed for such a vertical particle to come into existence and lead to finite results. And as we find is, what we find is that this particle needs to be really, really, really heavy. So in, on the slide, he has there a, a number of uh, one with, I think it's 18 zeros. And then the, the, this times the mass of the proton. So it is a really, really heavy particle. But for now we say, okay, so the particle has to be heavy. What's the big issue with it? But now there is the statement from general relativity coming in that says, if we put a lot of mass in a small area, this uh, space will curve so much that it becomes a black hole. And actually the, the mass of this par virtual particle we, we defined here would, be, would come in this area where it, uh, where it is so heavy that there would a black hole be created. And what's the problem with a black hole is that a black hole is also called a singularity. And this is also a version of infinity. So with this new particle, we get a black hole and infinities. And the black, hole, black holes exist, but they, their existence makes our quantum theory non-predictive. So we win nothing with it and our theory will not be predictive in any way. So this is the real problem. So why is it hard to unify quantum mechanics and general relativity? So for one, because quantum mechanics says that you can borrow so much free energy from empty space that uh, the general relativity would then say that you make a black hole, black hole. And if you now ask, yeah, okay, but black holes exist as we do know from, from observations in space. So what's the problem with it? 
uh, is yeah but the existence of these black holes make this quantum theory non-predictive because we have singularities and infinities and there's just no way to make uh, proper predictions uh, from those and uh, therefore that's the reason why it is so difficult to find a theory of quantum gravitation Okay, it's time for a short break. Maybe you have heard of it, but recently Elon Musk uh, told about his new research of his company Neuralink uh, about human brain uh, machine interfaces where you basically with your brain you can access a computer or a smartphone or some apps and so on and where they were showing first results of these uh, experiments that they uh, did. Uh, what I think is really interesting about uh, this is uh, that my book that you can order now also in English, Alien Thoughts, uh, is really about exactly that topic, about uh, some neurochip that is implanted in the heads of people and with the, which they uh, can uh, do similar things and also with uh, some side effects that occur in the in those. So... Uh, What what is even more funnier than this? I wrote my book. Uh, the most part of my book was really finished before I even know about Elon Musk's company and about what they were doing, and even knew about the name of this. And uh, in the end, if you have read my book, you notice in the end there is some. I think I call it neural connection there uh, that they uh, have there, and this is some something that they use the neurochip for, with which they can do some stuff so read it if you want to more lo know more about it but the interesting thing is i in the in the beginning i initially i st i plan to uh, call this a neural link and only when i found out that they were really working on such things and that the company that was working on it is actually called neural link i decided to um to change the name a little bit to make don't make this association to this company but uh, i really think it's interesting that uh, something that i really had in 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 my mind only i was thinking about it yeah and some not so distant future it might come yeah the the future of this is not even as distant uh, as i thought it would be it's even closer in some degrees i hope not the future that, that is described in this book but still i think it's uh, it shows that it's a pretty pretty current theme pretty current also in the technologies that are described there so if you're really interested in scientific topics then or sci-fi sci topics then i really encourage you to read it and also if you it's not a not a pure science fiction novel it's also a lot of uh, of spies and uh, of adventurous stuff is in there so if you if you enjoy these kinds of novels then re i really encourage you to to read it and i would really uh, like if you would order the book and of course if you have already ordered it and read it and you liked it then i would really uh, re really encourage you to write a, a, a review such that uh, other people will know what the book is about and can see if this book is something for them. Episode 19 
the physics behind Oppenheimer. So last year, uh, I'm not sure if you have seen it, but last year this movie came out of uh, Oppenheimer from Christopher Nolan. And when this episode comes out, uh, the Oscars were just uh, uh, awarded. But since I pre-recorded episodes, I only know that this movie has been nominated for a lot of Oscars. So uh, let's see how many Academy Awards it will win. But uh, I think it r was really a good movie. I really liked it. Uh, but as it is with such movies about physics, about uh, for for from the view of a physicist about an area of expertise oftentimes the one the things one is most excited about is not covered there for one thing because uh, the, the movie focuses on different things I, I think in in this movie if you have seen it it focuses a lot more on the politics and the implications of uh, the invent development of the atomic bomb and less on the physics of uh, atomic reactions and so on But but still, it was a really entertaining movie. But uh, I I thought in this episode I can kind of add to that the physics behind the atomic bomb. How does an atomic bomb work, and what are the physical laws behind it, the principles behind it, and also some some things that I uh, or that that interests me about or would have been interesting to me about the Manhattan Project and the scientists behind it. So as we heard in the last episode, basically uh, what uh, atomic bombs and nuclear weapons uh, work with is, or what they use is basically radioactive decay. And in the last episode, we already talked about this to some degree in order to show uh, it as an example of a theory that where the infinity uh, results of it can be removed in it. And there we saw... Uh, also this process of a neutron decaying into a proton and an electron and an electron neutrino of course and this is also what occurs uh, in there where the process of nuclear fission is used so in in radioactive decay uh, this occurs uh, spontaneously basically the atom is in an instable condition and it decays into a more stable one and by this this radioactive decay is emitted but one can also um stimulate that and this is what happens in nuclear fission where uh, you for example you use then a, a neutrino and you charge it on some of these particles, for example, uranium, another uh, uh, material that can be used is plutonium, so these are the atoms that can be used for this, and with this uh, shaking that comes from this neutron that is uh, put into this atom, uh, the, the, um, the, the repelling power of the electromagnetic force of the protons uh, uh, is then becoming stronger than the, the forces of the nucleus uh, because they have only a limited reach and with this the nucleus uh, is split apart and what this reaches is not only that then now we have two nuclei but if one just checks the masses of the, the first nuclei nucleus and the two nuclei individually you will see that The, the, the mass does not sum up. So what does this mean? Does this mean energy is not conserved? No, not at all. As we have learned also before in the last episode from uh, the theory of relativity, energy is mass. E equals mc square or E equals m if you put c to one. And this is uh, is what's happening here. So the mass is converted into an energy. So actually the the inner energy of the coupling of the, the this nucleus is uh, set free in this uh, reaction. 
and so energy is released but if you only do this for one atom this is not really much yet so you need to do this for a lot of atoms at the same time or at a short period of time to really have this impact of a huge bump and what is done to achieve this is that uh, when when this process occurs there are also neutrons after this division of the uh, separation of the uh, nuclei are is achieved uh, there there are also neutrons that coming out of this process usually and if one manages to keep this neutrons in in some area and even even manages to get them to uh, stimulate uh, other nuclei as the, the first nucleus was stimulated then you can have this chain reaction where uh, neutrons are emitted and um, splitting other atoms and so on and then this chain reaction happens and then you get this all this energy released which will in the end lead to such an atomic explosion. And uh, this really releases high temperatures. So it's uh, temperatures in the area of a million degrees Kelvin. So it's really hot and it's even hotter than the energy uh, or the hotter than the temperatures inside of the sun. So it's really, really hot uh, temperatures. Uh, but as it turns out, so it, it's a really powerful bomb and it was really, uh, really uh, devastating in its impact. Also, when it was uh, first ten tested in the Trinity test in New Mexico, uh, it really is a powerful bomb and was up to this point the most powerful weapon that was ever invented and ever tested and ever used. But it... Uh, did not stop there so there is even a more powerful way to create those bombs by not using nuclear fission but nuclear fusion and this has been uh, done also later it also the 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 movie relates to that that later they built this so-called hydrogen bomb or eight the h bomb and what is used there is not this uh, nuclear fission but it's the nuclear fusion and there you use uh, heavy uh, hydrogen or deuterium and tritium um, and they fusion to helium and what happens there is when these two nuclei are, comp uh, are put together to one uh, nuclei to helium there this effect occurs such that you again have such a mass defect and with that even more energy than in the nuclear fission is released and this well needs a lot of temperature or a lot of pressure and really high temperatures and to achieve such high temperatures and such a high pressure you actually need an atomic bomb to to ignite such an hydrogen bomb so to to ignite an or to kindle an hydrogen bomb you need an atomic bomb so this shows how powerful this bomb actually is and when this bomb was fir first tested uh, in in an atoll in the pacific um this first test was called Ivy Mike or this, the bomb was called Ivy Mike and when it, when it was tested in the Pacific the, the island on which it was uh, tested was after the explosion completely vanished into the Pacific so this shows you how powerful such, such an explosion is and, and, and was and it shows you also that um, uh, how, how, how much more powerful than an atomic bomb that even is so this was some the physics I think or some introduction to the physics behind this atomic bomb that that was created in the Manhattan Project and also 
later in 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 later projects of the atomic problem uh, program of the US and what i thought found most, most interesting about this um, uh, manhattan project was that there were so many brilliant scientists that that came together there if you especially see it later they they all many of those received nobel prizes for their research not on the atomic bomb but on on parts of uh, particle physics for example enrico fermi was a, a, a physicist who, who for his work on nuclear fusion uh, re uh, um, received a nobel prize and richard feynman was a, a physicist there who received a nobel prize for his work on quantum electrodynamics and many brilliant physicists were gathered there together and uh, what ex excites me most is uh, the, the stories that are told uh, that they had uh, that occurred there in these times for example uh, Enrico Fermi was really um, known for his uh, great way of making estimations and there are this is this area of what you call uh, Fermi questions those are questions that you can state where you cannot immediately know the answer by just putting in some equations and uh, uh, Call calculating it out, but where you have to make some assumptions, where you have to make some estimations, some smart estimations, educated guesses to come to a close approximation of um, of the result. For example, one was that we had in our uh, in our when when I was started studying, it was one of the first homework I got. Uh, I got was to was on these Fermi questions, and, on, and one of the question was how many uh, dentists are are there in Germany. And the way you can estimate this is you can say, for example, okay, I know there are about 80 million people living in Germany, and then you can from this conclude how many. So in Germany, it is recommended to go to the dentist twice a year and then you can see okay how many appointments uh, would uh, would be needed for for to cover all Germans who go to the dentist twice a year and from this you can kind of estimate how many uh, dentists there would be needed and then Uh, what I, that this is how I calculated it, and what I missed is that, of course, not every dentist is working overtime and so on. So there is a little bit less uh, dentists, uh, a little bit more dentists than this every absolute number of at least at least needed uh, dentists. So I think in Germany it's about eighty thousand dentists that are working there. Uh, but this is, uh, I, I think, I was in the right ballpark. I was uh, at some ten thousands of dentists, so it, it was pretty accurate. And uh, Fermi was really ex an expert on this, and this uh, was shown in the fact that when when the before the first atomic bomb was tested in this test trinity test in new mexico he uh, started making such estimations about how much the impact will be uh, what uh, what what it will look like and all these questions and using his technique he estimated it and in the end he came pretty close to the actual uh, results so this is pretty interesting also uh, if you know about richard feynman who really is 
especially due to his uh, Feynman lectures later and his uh, unique way of looking at physics. Uh, he is really the one of the, the stars of physics or one of the greatest minds since Einstein, many people say. And if you have read his uh, Surely You're Choking Mr. Feynman, so it's kind of his audio autobiography where he tells about uh, anecdotes about his life, also his life in the Manhattan Project. And there are many, many interesting stories about that. For example, he used to... Um, write uh, letters who, to his wife using a secret language and then he needed to decrypt it to the uh, the secret agents there who were uh, may, were concerned about the security about the no, no secret information got out of there and so he had because he did this games with his wife he had to explain to them what he was writing there actually and what he also came up with in this time he started um started the the, the walls they had there they he started to hack them uh, to 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 hack the locks and so on so he was a really interesting character and what's one interesting part so in in the in the movie oppenheimer he's not really part of it he's kind of standing there and say and does not say much but i think one part was really covered in the movie and this was uh shows how much of an understanding and a deep trust uh, Richard Feynman actually had in physics uh, because uh, when when the atomic bomb was tested first, everyone, uh, as you can see in the movie, everyone is picking up his glasses to to keep the radiation from harming their, their eyes and so on. And uh, Richard Feynman did not do this. He wanted to see the explosion in its fullest, but, but he, of course, also wanted to protect himself. And what he said is, okay, I know from physics that all this uh, harmful radiation this uv light and so on uh, is uh, not able to pass through uh, uh, through glass so if you know the spectrum of of light passing through glass it's interesting that uh, the uv light is usually completely blocked off of it and Feynman knew that and so he just uh, sat in a car uh, where there's a windshield and there there is a glass to protect him and he looked at the explosion without putting any uh, protection cla uh, classes in front of him so this shows what, what a deep understanding of physics he actually had and also a, a trust in the in the laws of physics that he he um knew knew so much about so this i i thought was really also interesting so i really if you if you want to know more about richard Feynman, i really recommend you to read his book it's really entertaining really amusing also to to get deeper into the thinking of him uh, how, how he thought how he was thinking about the world because many i think he had many many right ideas about science and how science works which is why i also cover much of him in 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 or much of his thoughts in in my my books i faith the uh, compatibility of science and faith so there's in the beginning there's always a quote of some uh, scientist or believing scientist and many of those are from Feynman himself although he himself was not uh, believing uh, but still he had i think a lot of ideas about science that were pretty fitting uh, or pretty accurate and also therefore in a, a later episode i plan on 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 
covering him there, covering his ideas, his statements, as I did also sometimes before when it fitted to the topic of the podcast. But I really encourage you to to read more about him. And if you if you want to learn about he teaches physics, I really recommend to you the Feynman lectures. He dives in really deep, so it's really uh, I mean it's for meant for physics students, of course. But I think there is something like it's called six easy pieces where you basically get the introductory part of these lectures and the easy parts, the parts that are more easy to understand. So if you say, I don't want to dive in that deeply, then I recommend those to you. And then you can really grasp the thinking of him, how he understood things and in in which way his, his genius kind of worked. So it's, it's really, really encouraging to read those. Episode 20, The Music of the Big Bang. So I like to listen to a podcast uh, from, uh, it's called Why This Universe. It's also about science. It's from Sharma Wexman and Dan Hooper, who's from Fermilab in Chicago. And they, in in the last year, covered an interesting topic, I think, about uh, the music of the Big Bang. And I want just to sum up what they are talking about and what I took from this uh, for, for, for as an analogy to the, to, the, to the faith or to creation and so on. So let's uh, just uh, dive into it. So first of all, what is meant by Big Bang? Bang? So there are different things you can look at it. So there's the scientific description of the Big Bang, of course, where it says uh, if we, we have this expansion of the universe, and if we just say okay is what it was expanding all the time then it must have been it at one point in space at one time and then we get to this point at uh, 30 something billion years ago uh, 30.8 i think uh, there there it must have been clumped all into one point and from there it uh, exploded into uh, this all this universe that we have today and of course, this uh, in one sense puts a really atheistic uh, point of view that the universe came to into existence spontaneously by such a big bang and so on and so on. But actually, I, th I don't believe that really to be the case because if you first of all, if you look into how the Big Bang Theory came to exist. It was actually a scientist called, uh, not only a scientist, but uh, um, a spiritual man uh, called uh, called uh, Charles Lemaitre. So he was a priest and he was also working as a scientist and he came up with the idea of the, the Big Bang. So it was there you see there was no contradiction for him to his faith and also the big bang theory was for a long time rejected because of this uh, closeness to the to the creation account to to uh, the beginning of the world because before before people always believed that uh, that the world has been around forever and ever and ever and and so on and that the the bible telling about the beginning of a world was just nonsense and with lemaitre's that there might have been a beginning of this universe uh, in, in a Big Bang, it was actually coming closer to what the Bible says about how the, the, the crea creation came to be. So therefore, I think it's really closer to, to belief, actually. And also, in if you look... At 
say say okay but there are disagreements with what the creation account says and so on but i think even if you look into the creation account you clearly see that there is a beginning and there is the universe that is being created and this must have somehow happened in a way that the materials came into existence by the word of god of course but then there is this uh, case that is happened uh, and and this occurred and therefore uh, you can it have has to start it by a bang in any way so uh, to say it like that and even uh, or especially if if the world was created and there would also have been such a beginning such a big bang at the beginning and maybe it's described in a little bit different way which could be because there is leeway in how how did big bang occur because it's an active field of study and there's an, there's much known by now but there's also not not and still much unknown by it so there is a little bit of leeway what could actually have happened there but uh, so i, I th when i'm talking about the big bang i basically mean the the scientific part of the beginning of the world so that what what happened in the material uh, during this time when the world came into being so now uh, you might think about okay now we have talked about a big bang but what about the music of the big bang i thought there was no sign sound in space and you are actually completely right so uh, the in space space is a vacuum so and uh, sh uh, sound is something that needs a medium to transfer through to to be able to to pass so uh, sound actually on a physical level uh, are Uh, fluctuations in in pressure and uh, uh, and density and those need to necessarily need to be in some medium in something like air or water or wood or something else and therefore in space there cannot be no sound because there is no medium that can transport the, this sound so whenever you watch a science fiction movie and they are having some space battle in, in somewhere in space and shooting at each other and the that it, it makes sounds like pew pew and so on then you know that this is not scientifically accurate accurate because this would not occur it would be completely silent say in space it's completely science a uh, silent because uh, sound has no way of uh, being transferred of, of being carried from one place to another so therefore in in space there is no sound of course but at the beginning matter was so condensed so densely put together that there was sound actually that's what they say there and there was um by uh, gravitation and pressure they uh, worked against each other in differently dense uh, regions and with this they um this yielded such sound waves to coming forth and uh, th these sound waves were then created and this is what they call the music of the big bang because then it really gets interesting if you look deeper into it if you look if you also account for the fact that the universe ex is expanding and then you come to to this uh, occurrence that in in similar in in regions of similar density the the same uh, kind of sound waves are are emitted so the same frequencies of sound waves are emitted and not only 
are they emitted? They are emitted at the same time. So you can really imagine it as some kind of choir where, where from different directions the same kind of sound is emitted and uh, comes together in unison. And I think this is a really beautiful picture of the beginning of the world that it's really kind of a, a choir, kind of a song, kind of music that, that, that is in there. And I think this is a, a great, uh, for me, it's really also a sign that 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 it has to be created, that there has to be, have been a creator behind it because uh, the Bible also tells us that the, world, that the world was created by God's word and there you have it, word is also sound and I mean, it can also have been some kind of music, you know. It, it, it was the spoken word of God but it, it definitely had some music to it and therefore you can see it also in, in the scientific part of the Big Bang as I described, you can see that there already was this music present uh, or this music actually physically occurring and therefore I think it's not much to make this uh, step that when, 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 when it says that the Bible describes this from a spiritual standpoint and then we see it even manifested in the physical I think this is pretty uh, for me it's a pretty obvious sign that the world was really created by God and You can also see in this, I think, um, so there's this scripture in, in the Gospels where, where the people are worshiping Jesus and, and some take offense on this. And then Jesus says, yeah, if they don't worship me, then the stones will cry out and, and worship me. So that says also that it, has, it is impl implied that creation yearns to, to worship God, uh, the worship the creator. And I think this is what you see also here. It is a music in, in, in the the creation as it uh, comes comes about and 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 mu it really lets be is about to be described like a choir like like music like something that gives uh, gives gives worship to to the one who creates it and this is i think also a really powerful full uh, statement also shows how how the creation always reflects back on, upon the creator which is a principle that i often in this podcast also cover so i think it's a really powerful uh, sign for really that the cre that our crea uh, our world was really created uh, by god and also uh, that the, the Bible is the correct description of this and also a sign that, that really uh, everything in, in this world yearns to or longs to, to, to worship God, uh, its creator and that, that this has also been happening from the beginning of the universe on. Another, uh, being speaking of this part of um, The creation reflecting back on the creator. This is also uh, also often happening in mathematics ex itself. Even if it is really a theoretical concept, even there you have some concepts where where, where God Himself in this logical system is is reflected uh, uh, in. And one one th great uh, example of this that I found uh, uh, last year also was the example of Gabriel's horn or Torricelli's trumpet it is also called and there it is uh, this is basically um You might know from school these coordinate systems and the functions that you can draw in there. And one of the functions is the function of one over x. So you have a function where x is in the in the denominator. And as you might know, if if a small number in the denominator, it, the, if there's a small number in the denominator, the the 
number becomes really big. If there's a big number, it becomes really slow. And the bigger it is, the closer it gets to zero. And this is what the function one over x in this coordinate system will look like. So it will start from really high up there from basically infinity uh, uh, where it would be at zero. And from there, it, it comes down uh, and gets smaller and smaller and smaller until in in infinity it will ult would ultimately uh, reach the point zero so th this is the way this function works and now uh, imagine you would uh, put this into a ro rotate this x-axis around uh, and would put a rotation there so that you don't have this only this function but you have kind of uh, a, a form a, a, a kind of form like a like something that would look like a trumpet or like a horn uh, that is created by this a three-dimensional uh, figure and now if you use this uh, this thing and you tr uh, try to calculate the the volume of it you will find that it is ha that it has a finite volume so you can compute a uh, volume it will be finite i think it's p it's pi and um but if you now say okay i know the volume but now i want to uh, calculate the surface this you can also do by mathematical means, but then you can see that um, the, that you um, will have an infinite result. So the surface uh, surface of it will be infinite, but the the, the volume will be finite. Finite, and uh, somebody therefore called it also uh, Gabriel's wedding cake. And the the because you can, with some much imagination, you can also say it looks like a wedding cake. And then you say, then he said, this is a cake that we can eat, but we cannot frost it. So you cannot put frosting on it because the surface is infinite, and you would need infinite frosting. But you can eat it because the volume is finite. So this shows how counterintuitive this example is, and there are many such examples in mathematics, especially with fractal structures. For example, there is this example of a snowflake that you can draw using some mechanism or some algorithm, where you're starting from a triangle. Or uh, split it up at the at the sides and put in other triangles. And if you continue to this on and on and on, you will get a, a something like a snowflake. And if you continue this infinitely and compute this structure that comes out there, you will find that the area that the area that this snowflake will cover is of course finite, uh, but the 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 line or the, the the border around it if you uh, compute the length of it you will find that it has an infinite uh, huge result so that, that it tends towards infinity so this is the same uh, basically in a lower dimension in a two-dimensional dim uh, space here we had it in three dimensions but this you can find several times in mathematics and i think the the powerful thing to me that it shows uh, regarding the faith is that as we know god is infinite but he, uh, uh, if we are believers, then he is living inside of us. This, the, the Bible clearly tells us this, and it, this can be uh, you can visualize it for yourself. If you ask yourself, how can I, as a 
a finite being contain an infinite God. And this can be uh, visualized in this way that just as this Gabriel's horn has a finite volume but an infinite surface, I as a finite human can uh, ha uh, can have an infinite God living on the inside of me without this being a contradiction. So this is, I think, a really powerful uh, image on that where you can visualize something like this easier. So this is also really uh, the cool thing about physics and mathematics and science that many things that uh, uh, that are known in faith or that seem in, in our faith uh, to be contradictions uh, can be res resolved even in, in, in physics and, and science sometimes. Or you can... If to, to visualize something, to get an understanding of some spiritual context, there is, since we have this concept of the creation reflecting itself in, uh, the creator reflecting himself in the creation, you can sometimes get an understanding of these things by looking at such uh, such occurrences. Of course, it's only a reflection. It's not a perfect image. Uh, this you have to keep in mind. But I, I think it's really helpful sometimes to have these uh, these these reflections and to see uh, the, the creator in its creation. So that's everything for today's episode. I hope you liked it and you enjoyed each part of it. If you want to get in touch with me or discuss a topic or want to give me some feedback, then feel free to contact me using the contact form at, on my website, sci-faith.de/en, And there you can go to the contact tab and contact me. And uh, if you have any other things you or episodes you want to have covered there or topics you haven't have covered, uh, feel free. Uh, to uh, contact me there. Also, if you are not yet familiar with the format in which these, uh, pod this podcast is produced, let me just briefly explain it to you. So there are always is always at the beginning of a month or of, of, of a block. There are is a, a big block of four episodes in in one thing. It's kind of like a preview, which I call it, where you have the next four episodes all in one episode uh, together combined. And this is for people who like to hear long form format podcasts who have a long way to work or something else where they can listen to a long episode and can then have a preview of the next four episodes all at once or episodes all at once and are completely up to date from the beginning of the blog for those who like uh, their episodes shorter who prefer it if if they have one, a half an hour or even less of a, po a podcast episode for those there is every week afterwards will appear a podcast episode almost in that length and this way I can uh, publish every week a, a new podcast every episode and everyone uh, can have it his own way either once a month a long uh, chunk of um, uh, of uh, content or once a week a shorter uh, form format uh, podcast episode so I think that's the best way for everyone and also for me when I'm producing it Please also note that this is an independent podcast, which means that it is recorded, produced and marketed by me. So I really need your support in this. So if you like this podcast, then give it a five star rating. And if you have the time, even write a review to it. This just helps other listeners to uh, become aware of this podcast. And then people who might be interested in this content become can become aware of it. Also, if you have friends who you think would like this content, then recommend it 
it to them and share it with them. Also, you can support me in other ways, for example, by reading my blog and uh, subscribing to my newsletter or even by reading my books, uh, which you can uh, find on Amazon. For example, there is... Um, My latest novel out now is Alien Thoughts, which is pretty entertaining from the feedback that I gotten. And so it's also in some way related to science and faith. The topic of it is also in there. But of course, you can also read the book to this podcast, Sci Faith, The Compatibility of Science and Faith, which is also available in English since last year. Thank you for that. And now I wish you a wonderful day. And I'm looking forward for you to tune in again next time.